It's Friday, February 9th. Well, everyone's going to remember this. We start here. The special counsel declines to charge President Biden over classified documents, but these allegations could be politically damaging on their own. They have expressed concerns about your age. That is your judgment. That is your judgment. This has sparked a full-fledged controversy over the president's memory overnight. That's one reason that yesterday was good for Donald Trump. Here's another. The argument that he should be kicked off the ballot didn't fare well in front of the justices. The Supreme Court looks poised to add his name back on the ballot in Colorado. And if your kid doesn't like the parent you divorced, could they be taken away from you forever? It's like textbook brainwashing. Lawmakers are taking a closer look at custody rules. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. One of the biggest legal threats to Donald Trump is the fact that for months after he left office, he kept boxes and boxes of classified information at his home at Mar-a-Lago. He maintains these belonged to him, but the FBI, the judicial system, and the law generally all disagree. The big question is whether he acted criminally when trying to hold on to them. However, He's not the only former official to be found with classified documents at his house. We saw it with Hillary Clinton after serving as Secretary of State. We saw it with Mike Pence and Joe Biden after they left the vice presidency. Unlike Trump, no one's alleging these people lied to investigators about the documents. However, Mike Pence had just been out of office for months when he alerted authorities. For Joe Biden, it was apparently years. A special counsel was appointed to look into this, and yesterday, that special counsel turned in his findings. What happened next has opened up new debates, not just about Biden's own actions, but also perhaps his mental acuity. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. An absolutely bizarre day in Washington that culminated in angry remarks that could have a real impact on Biden's re-election campaign. Let's go straight to ABC's national correspondent, Stephen Portnoy. Stephen, first of all, can we talk about this special counsel report? What were the takeaways from, the guy's name is Robert Herr. Yeah, Brad, this report was more than a year in the making. Robert Herr is a Republican who previously served as the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney for Maryland. And he dug into the presence of the classified documents at Joe Biden's home in Wilmington, his office here in D.C. at the Penn Biden Center, and at the University of Delaware, where Biden had kept papers from his 36 years in the Senate. And his report finds that Joe Biden had quite a bit of classified materials on hand, mainly from his eight years as vice president. They were in boxes in his garage, his basement, his offices. They were in folders. One of them marked eyes only. And significantly, there were also notebooks, handwritten notes from Biden himself about the period of time in 2009 when he fiercely debated with fellow Obama administration officials about whether the president, Barack Obama, should be sending more troops to Afghanistan. Biden was against that, and he kept these documents and documents around it, as well as his own notes about that period of time. And why would he do that? Well, the Her Report says that Joe Biden worked with a ghostwriter on his 2017 book, Promise Me Dad, And that as he discussed this period of time from 2009 with his ghostwriter, Biden referred to the classified information in those notebooks in his chats with the ghostwriter. The ghostwriter recorded these chats. And at least three times, the Her Report says, the former vice president read aloud from classified material. Joe Biden's conduct in all of this, Brad, is described as willful. Wait, wait, Stephen, that seems like 
a shocker here because the Biden team has always basically said, yeah, we mistakenly packed up some boxes when Biden was leaving the vice presidency. Yeah, some of those boxes had classified documents. And the minute we learned otherwise, we contacted the authorities. Her is what saying Biden knew he had this stuff. Yes. And this report really is damning in that respect. But the reason why Robert Hur is not recommending criminal charges is significant and damning for the president politically, because here's what's behind it. Here's the quote from the report. At trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview with him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory. Wow. Now, Robert Hur says, during his team's talk with the president, which took place over two days at the White House last October, the president at times seemed to forget which years he served as vice president and even which year his son, Beau, died. It's essentially the view that it would be difficult to convict Joe Biden because his memory has faded. By the time he's no longer a sitting president, he'll be well into his 80s. And the, the, uh, the case that Robert Hur makes to his seniors at the Justice Department is that it would just be too difficult to secure a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, okay, Stephen, but like I remember the investigation in a Hillary Clinton's email back in the day, and people said, listen, if you got charges against somebody, you should announce those charges. Otherwise, generally, law enforcement doesn't go saying stuff that can't be charged. Like you either say you got a case or you don't. How did Biden respond to all these kind of like extra details, these extra allegations? Biden responded forcefully last night, Brad, in an exchange with reporters in the diplomatic reception room of the White House, hastily arranged by the White House. Reporters came in and the president started by saying that essentially Robert Hur got it all wrong. I've seen the headlines since the report was released about my willful retention of documents. This, these assertions are not only misleading, they're just plain wrong. And he specifically said that Hur misread Biden's own handwritten notes about what went on in 2009 vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan and his argument to Obama. The president said he did not share classified information with his ghostwriter, that he could guarantee that he did not. I did not share classified information. I did not share it. With your ghostwriter? With my ghostwriter, I did not. Guarantee you did not. But the what special the, counsel said in well, the report no, that he did. did not say that. I've just got to say it, Brad. That seems to be the president's opinion, his own view of what he had in his documents. What Robert Hur says in his report is that those handwritten notes were taken to the FBI, to the intelligence community. And it was an assessment by the intelligence community, a classification review that determined that what was in those handwritten notes was classified, mm. top secret, at the highest levels. So it seems like it's a difference of opinion. The president very firmly holds that opinion, but it's his opinion versus the US government's opinion. In his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president. I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. And Biden really got into it with reporters when it came to what Hur said about his memory. Uh, I have rarely heard Joe Biden get this fired up, but he was particularly angered over the idea that Robert Hur would say in his report that Biden couldn't remember when his son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. And then there were these real flashes of anger from the president when reporters asked about his mental acuity, asked about his ability to carry forward 
in this term and the next term. Many American people have been watching and they have expressed concerns about your age. That is they, your judgment. They, that is your is judgment. On the whole, it was a fiery, defiant response, an angry response from the president about this her report that really does embarrass him. But frankly, Brad, there was a moment as the president was wrapping up his brief exchange with reporters that further embarrassed him. The conduct of the response in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip has been um, over the top. The president stopped to answer one last question about Israel. And in his response, he tried to invoke the name of the president of Egypt, but he said... Initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. Look, Joe Biden is not the first president to get things wrong. I talk into microphones every day and I get things wrong. I I bet sometimes you do too. But when you are putting yourself forward as president of the United States, when the weight of the world literally is on your shoulders and when there are questions about whether as an 81-year-old man you are going into a decline that is so normal. This is a real political liability. And increasingly, Americans are wondering, not just about Joe Biden personally, but what it means for the country. Hey, and lastly, Stephen, Biden also tried to use this all as an opportunity to draw a bright line between himself and Donald Trump because Donald Trump is under investigation for his handling of classified documents. Will Americans distinguish that line as we move forward from this bizarre back and forth? Well, look, for Trump, for Trump's campaign, for Trump's allies, this whole thing, in addition to being embarrassing for Biden, proves to them that there's a two-tiered system of justice because Trump is being prosecuted for his handling of classified information and Biden would not be under hers recommendation. But remember, and the president himself pointed this out repeatedly yesterday, there are important differences between the two cases. As a special counsel wrote, and I quote, Several material distinctions between Mr. Trump's case and Mr. Biden's are clear. By the way, this is a Republican counsel. Biden's retention of documents, according to her, was willful. But when the investigators came calling, Biden was cooperative. He opened his home to the investigators. He sat for an interview. And it's alleged by federal prosecutors that Donald Trump tried to keep the National Archives and the Justice Department at bay, that he lied to his own attorneys, that he had his staff move classified documents around Mar-a-Lago to hide them, and that he tried to have video evidence of those documents being moved destroyed. So the lack of any evidence of obstruction is another mitigating circumstance that weighs in Biden's favor. Yeah, Biden gave the documents back right away is the other difference. I guess the thing I'll always remember about this, Stephen, is that Biden had already responded to this report. Then he went out again last night as if he wanted to kind of go back and forth with reporters again. And he ended up digging perhaps this deeper political hole. And he's not just president, right? He's also running for re-election. He's running to reapply for this job. And now Americans see him getting this stuff wrong as he's trying to make sure they know he's got it right. Stephen Portnoy, big potential day in Washington here for a number of reasons. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. 
Meanwhile, you remember the case out of Colorado, where the state Supreme Court there ruled that the 14th Amendment prohibits Trump from going back on a presidential ballot because of his role in the January 6th attacks on Congress. Well, yesterday, Trump's team went to the U.S. Supreme Court to get him back on the ballot. Kate Shaw is a constitutional law scholar and ABC Supreme Court contributor. Kate, we kind of teed this case up yesterday. How did the justices react to this argument that Trump should be kicked off the ballot somewhere? Um, Trump got a very friendly reception in the Supreme Court, and the argument that he should be kicked off the ballot didn't fare well in front of the justices. It sounds awfully national to me. Um, So whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal, national means. There was actually a surprising amount of cross-ideological agreement among the justices. They all seemed really concerned about what Colorado had done and what the Supreme Court of Colorado had done here, which was to say Trump can't be on the ticket. And the concern that they were voicing was a really pragmatic one. If we affirmed and we said he was ineligible to be president, yes, maybe some states would say, well, you know, we're going to keep him on the ballot anyway. But I mean, really, it's going to have, as Justice Kagan said, the effect of Colorado deciding. And it's if an true, individual state can throw someone off the ballot, what does that mean for a national election and a president of the whole country? And I'm not exactly sure how they're going to get there, but I feel pretty confident coming out of yesterday's argument that Trump will be back on the Colorado ballot and no serious effort in any other state is going to get much traction. Really? You could hear that just from, from all these justices and their questions to the councils? Absolutely. Sometimes it's hard to read how justices are thinking just from their questions. This wasn't one of those arguments. Mm. It was very, very clear that they were troubled by the notion that a state could do this, and they wanted to find some path to reverse. Do you agree that the state's powers here over its ballot for a federal officer election have to come from some constitutional authority? Members of this court have disagreed about that. I'm asking you. the, the majority of this court has said that those powers come from Article 2. Interestingly, they weren't really grappling with this core question of whether January 6th or Trump's involvement in it was an insurrection. They were just asking essentially what it would mean, again, on the ground, for a system like ours if each state got to decide for itself whether someone was disqualified under the 14th Amendment because Congress hasn't taken any action and so states can't unilaterally do that. I'm just trying to get you to grapple with what some people have seen as the consequences of the argument that you're advancing, which is that there will be conflicts in decisions among the states, that different states will disqualify different candidates. Justice Alito even raised the possibility that, well, if a state like Colorado can kick Trump off the ballot, what if other states can retaliate and kick Biden off the ballot, suggesting that he's ineligible, that maybe something that he did was tantamount to insurrection, and that it would set in motion kind of this tit for tat, or at least it might, that might destabilize our presidential elections broadly. That's interesting. And again, like they don't even have to rule on whether they think he's an insurrectionist, just whether a state like this can kick him off the ballot. Apparently it looks like they might not. Then they're also going to have to rule on whether the former president is immune from prosecution. We'll see what happens there. Uh, Kate Shaw, thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. Next up on Start Here, it's called reunification therapy, but does it just pick a new parent to alienate? We're back in a bit. 
This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So, no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com start here and download the ZocDoc app for free, then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. It's not uncommon for kids to grow up with separated parents, right? To have one parent with primary custody, another parent who you visit on weekends and holidays. It's also not uncommon to have one of those parents talk about the other one, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not. When it's counterproductive, when this is actually turning a kid against one of their parents for no good reason, there's a name for this. It's called alienation. And you can imagine how much this concept gets brought up in family court, in custody battles. Well, this year, there have been more and more calls to end a controversial practice that courts have been using for years that's meant to restore these relationships. I was depressed and suicidal. That's not a happy kid. He wanted a way to get back at me because I'm the one that wanted the divorce. He didn't. I had no friends. I had, I had nobody. It's like textbook brainwashing. Kristen Thorne is an investigative reporter for our affiliate WABC here in New York, and recently she took a deep dive on how these programs affect parents and perhaps more importantly, their children. Kristen, thanks for being with us. I mean, what are these programs? These programs, Brad, are called reunification programs or reunification treatment. Sometimes people use the word camps with them, which is a word that people who support these programs really do not like. But the idea is to allow the child or the children who have been alienated, according to if the judge decides that they have been, to reconnect with that other parent. Mm. These are the most severe child custody battles that you can imagine. To really get to this level means that there has been an incredible amount of toxicity in these households, mm. so much so that the judges are like, look, this has gotten so bad 
that I'm going to put you in one of these treatment programs. Brad, also so you know, there are only a very few of these treatment programs in the country because, as you can imagine, this is a very unique treatment. Yeah. How does this work from the kid's perspective? Like, how, how do the kids describe them? So I ended up speaking with a young man. His name is Ashton Goff. You felt safe with your mother? A hundred percent. There was never a time where I never felt safe with my mom. He was living in Delaware at the time. He's 14 years old. But you felt unsafe with your father. Of course. Yeah. He I mean, I, every time I saw him, it was I would have I would have like stress induced heartburn. He kept taking her to court every, you know, two, one year, two years, whatever. And she didn't have the money to fight him. After a judge rules that, yes, this these children or this child needs to be taken away from the alienating parent, which in this case, Ashton's case, was his mother, Kelly. For about a year, I didn't see my dad. Then he got Linda Gottlieb and turning points involved. And our judge thought it was a good idea, I guess. So Ashton and his brother are enrolled in a program called Turning Points for Families, which is based in New York, and it's run by a woman by the name of Linda Gottlieb. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed clinical social worker by the state of New York. Linda Gottlieb hailed the idea of reunification treatment back in 2014. That's when she testified in front of a Connecticut state committee. If a parent says, I will not participate and facilitate the relationship with the other parent, well, maybe then they shouldn't have physical custody. Ashton told me that himself, his younger brother, his father, his stepmother and her children would all go to Linda Gottlieb's house and talk about memories that Hmm. good memories they had as a family before all of this really started. But during this time, Brad, he's not allowed to have any contact with his mother. What were they saying about your mother? Well, Gottlieb explained that my mom was alienating us from my dad. And that's bad because my dad's a really good person. And all of my ideas about my dad have been implanted in me by my mom. He's sent away with his younger brother for four days. Linda Gottlieb often recommends that a judge orders another 90 days. This works in periods of 90 days. Oh, 90 days of no contact with that primary caregiver. 90 days, Brad, without speaking to, communicating, texting the alienating parent, which in Ashton's case was his mother. I mean, it was absolutely terrible. Not only did I not get to see my mom, I couldn't talk to her mom, my grandparents on her side, who I'm very close with. Not only his mother, Brad, anybody connected to his mother. This goes under the... That sounds sounds alienating in itself if extended family is a big deal to you. This is what I've said. And I have said this to Linda Gottlieb and we had some conversations because I really do not understand how this is not alienating the child from the other parent. But what I've what I have learned and what people have explained to me who support these types of programs is this, unfortunately, is the only way that the courts feel that this relationship can be restored with the other parent. We need to treat it like any other case of child abuse. That's removal from the alienating parent because they are abusing the child. So Linda Gottlieb, we gave her many opportunities to talk to us about her program, about Ashton's case. She said that she is not allowed to discuss Ashton's case specifically with us or any other case because of medical privacy laws. But in Ashton's case, he didn't see his mother for more than two years. Two years? How would Wait, how would that fall under the, the 90 days of the program rule? So, Brad, here's the thing. 
If the parent, meaning the alienating parent, Ashton's mom in this case, does not follow the rules of Linda Gottlieb's program, the judge orders after Linda Gottlieb recommends that the no contact period keep going and keep going and keep going. She was supposed to write these letters and that they basically admitting to alienating us, which she wasn't going to do. The alienating parent must write an apology letter to the child and to the other parent. And in some cases, the alienating parent has to present this letter in person to the other parent, to the child, and there also must be a witness. She did write the letters, but then um, Gottlieb said that they contained hidden messages and therefore were not good enough and she needed to rewrite them. And she rewrote them several times, but they were never good enough. In another case, Brad, we have Ariana Jones. My father left, um, literally just dropped us off on my mom's doorstep and just left for a few years. And after a few years, he wanted to come back. And that's when the reunification process started. Ariana Jones was uh, 16 when she and her younger brother were enrolled also in Turning Points for Families with Linda Gottlieb. They were living in Florida at the time. And Ariana, same thing. Her father it was considered to be the alienated parent. My brother and I had to go to New York for, I think it was four or five days. Same thing, four-day intervention with Linda Gottlieb. They go back to Florida. And Ariana will tell you, I thought that I was going to go back to my mom. We were initially told that after the program, we might have to stay with my father for a few days, but we would go back to our mom and we'd see our mom again. That turned into a year. And under the rules of the program, the child must not contact the alienating parent. I was already on antidepressants before I left And I just, I had to keep constantly increasing my dose. Honestly, it was definitely the hardest time of my life. Well, and like you said, like these are considered extreme circumstances, right? At least that's what the judges have decided, that these are extreme enough to warrant these. But if it's all about child welfare and all about keeping the kid connected to their family, how do the children feel about it now? Like this has been years now, right? So what's the reaction from the kids looking back on it? In Ashton's case, he went back to his mother and has not seen or spoken to his father since. He also has not seen or spoken to his brother in years, and that is very upsetting to him. Ariana Jones also uh, ran, you know, at 17, went back to her mom and has not spoken to her father. She was required to speak to her father until she was 18. She's now 22, and she has not spoken to her father since she was 18. When you heard that your family was going to become part of the Turning Points program, what was your reaction to that? Uh, Relief. I spoke at length with David Jones, Ariana Jones's father, which was really a great opportunity to speak with the alienated parent about his perspective. How did he feel when he was going through all this? At the time, I mean, the kids were made scared of me. I had a strong belief in the court and that honesty would would prevail. He really felt that Turning Points for Families was a good program. He thought it was effective. The respectful tone of the children, you know, talking to me, not calling me by name, but as a dad, you know, where there were good times that we were able to share, um, you know, moments. And it got, it was as simple as, you know, laughing at a TV show. But when I asked um, him 
What is your relationship like now with your children? He said that his children are 18 years old and he believes that they are living with their mother. Have you talked to them at all since they have now aged out of the program? Um, I, I send them, you know, birthday cards, occasional texts uh, and things like that. Well, and obviously, like you spoke to the practitioner who obviously believes in this. I'm sure there's other parents who, who feel like they've reconnected to their families from this. But this idea of, of maybe not using this program has kind of gained traction across the country, right? Can you tell me how, how much sort of bigger this gets? There's a lot of focus on this across the country. There are several programs, as I mentioned, Brad, that deal in this sort of treatment program. In California, for example, though, in October... Governor Gavin Newsom signed a law called Peaky's Law. There is specific language about reunification programs, reunification treatment, and how they should not be allowed in the state of California. Colorado just passed a bill to ban reunification and to mandate training for judges in domestic violence and child abuse. In New York State, there's no state agency that oversees these programs. The judges are making these final decisions. There is a lot of talk about whether these programs are beneficial or hurtful to the children, but it still remains this very murky, these murky waters. All right, Kristen Thorne with our affiliate WABC here in New York. Really great reporting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, you think football players have it tough? They can at least see out their helmets. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. The Super Bowl kicks off on Sunday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Each team will have 54 people in top physical condition. 53 of them will be players, and one of them will be their mascot. KC Wolf and Sourdough Sam are having their moments. And more and more often, these are universally known characters, which is why ABC's own Ashen Singh has been learning their ways. You've now spent a lot of time around mascot costumes. What does that smell like? Oh man, that smell is rank, Brad. It's, uh... Recently, Ashen traveled to Indiana, which I did not know is home to the Mascot Hall of Fame. On the walls are the likes of the San Diego Chicken, Mr. Met, Benny the Bull, Harry the Hawk, uh, uh, the Phoenix Suns Gorilla, the San Antonio Spurs Coyote, and, and Rocky the Mountain Lion. If you know any of these names, it's because these big fluffy characters have become bigger and bigger brands under themselves. They can make as much as $600,000 a year just being a salaried mascot by the team from the team alone. The biggest earner, by current estimates, is Rocky the Mountain Lion, who prowls the sidelines of Denver Nuggets games. Super mascot Rocky is going to be attempting his world-famous ladder shot. 
Once you add your salary to paid appearances outside the arena, some of these guys pull in more than a million a year. Most mascots make far, far less, which is why across the country, lesser-known performers are trying to level up. So Dave Raymond, who's considered the OG uh, and godfather uh, of the mascot world, hosts this mascot boot camp at the Mascot Hall of Fame in Indiana. That's right, a weekend devoted to the art of mascotting. I know what you're wondering, and yes, Ashen enrolled himself. And you went to this? Went to the mascot boot camp, got put in a suit myself, not a traditional mascot suit. Dave brings uh, these blue kind of bubble suits for, for people who may not have their own costumes. You got the generic, you got the training wheels. I get the generic mascot costume and I was put through the ringer, man. Hands in the face, sit around the circle. Up in the air, hey. No, 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 we oh, got no, the... Right, yeah. This is tough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this this is where you realize how much goes into the modern mascot game. Years ago, mascots walked around and waved. Then in the 1970s, Dave Raymond came up with a new mascot, the Philly Fanatic. You guessed it, the Philly Fanatic has found George's box. <laughs> He's over having a little fun. And that's oh. Eddie, Eddie the driver. Oh, Eddie. Drives Mr. Steinbrenner around. <laughs> Look, he gets a head full of popcorn. The Fanatic is, well, who can really say what he is? He's like a huge fuzzy green monster who gets in a dance contest with fans, who gets in a staged fight with opposing players. The Fanatic became a show unto himself. People kept coming back, but it wasn't just for the Phillies, they were coming back for the Fanatic. Raymond went on to create a new mascot for the Philadelphia Flyers across town. This was the bright orange googly-eyed furball named Gritty, who's become an instant icon. Hanging out with Gritty, I felt like I was meeting the Pope, man. See, I heard that you actually came into the game with a little bit of a chip on your shoulder because of how people treated you when you started out. Is that true? On a given night, Gritty might pull a prank, film a TikTok, and throw a football 40 yards. He can do it all, which is why Raymond's classes are part stunt work, part clown school, and part business seminar. You start with an authentic story, and it's got to combine all of the things that are good about you. Nowadays, just like in sports, there is a pipeline for mascot talent, from the amateur ranks to college to the big leagues. We met a 17-year-old kid named Justin, who is mini thunder for a minor league baseball team. And he's just 17 years old, man. And he's got real big league mascot dreams. But the key to mascotting will forever be crowd work. And that's tough to teach. I had to sneak to him that I'm from Boston. Before you know it, I'm getting thrown in the closet by Gritty. Gritty literally grabs him by his hoodie and throws him out. Luckily, Ashen says he wasn't expecting to become a celebrity mascot because just like me, he likes talking too much. Go Sourdough Sam, go Niners. You can tell I'm not unbiased on this. Start Here is produced by Kelly Therese, Jen Newman, Brenda Salinas-Baker, Vika Aronson, Cameron Chertavian, Anthony Ali, Mara Milwaukee, and Tara Gimble. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. Josh Cohan is director of podcast programming. I'm our managing editor. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Thanks to Lakia Brown, John Newman, and Liz Alessi. Special thanks this week to Chris Berry, Josh Margolin, and John Parkinson. I'm Brad Milkey. See you next week.